one of the most beautiful human beings I've ever had the privilege to know, uh, was a longtime pillar of this congregation, a man named Reuben. Now, there are still plenty of us around who uh, remember Reuben fondly and remember him well. Reuben was a rare person that physically, even until very late in life, he was an imposing man. Tall, broad-shouldered, strong, fit, ex-Marine who fought at Iwo Jima. Later was a truck driver, owned a restaurant. He was tough. He was a tough man. And yet, on the inside, he had one of the biggest hearts, if not softest hearts, that I've ever known. He had this profound warmth that drew people to him. Uh, many people joined this congregation because of him and his graciousness and his warmth, uh, his invitations. Far more joined the church because of him than me, or at least always told me about Reuben being the one. The funny thing about Reuben for me as the preacher, though, was every now and then he would prod me to preach on hell. He wanted me to preach about hell. He told me that he himself had been scared into salvation. <laughs> he had been frightened in it enough that he, he accepted Jesus into his life. And he thought that there were a lot of people who needed a healthy fear of God to get them straight. And to his credit, to Reuben's credit, there is a very long tradition of that sort of uh, terrorizing preaching and teaching in the Christian church. One of the most famous such sermons is one that I, I read in high school for a class even before I was a Christian, and it was pretty terrifying. Uh, many of you are probably already thinking, okay, if it was something read in a class in high school, you're already guessed that I'm referring to Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards, an 18th century New England pastor. Uh, I, here's a taste of this. Uh, this is the most I would ever do for Reuben, usually is, is read from this sermon. Um, not entirely ironically, but somewhat. So this is uh, Jonathan Edwards. So thus it is that natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They have deserved the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it. And God is dreadfully provoked. The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them. The flames gather and flash about. The God that holds you over the pit of hell much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. It goes on in like, for pages like this. But I, I, the ending is just too good to pass up. How dreadful is the state of those that are daily and hourly in danger of this great wrath and infinite misery. But this is the dismal case of every soul in this congregation that has not been born again, however moral and strict, sober, 
and religious they may be otherwise. Oh, that you would consider it, whether you be young or old. There is reason to think that there are many in this congregation now hearing this discourse that will actually be the subjects of this very misery to all eternity. We know not who they are or in what seats they sit or what thoughts they now have. It may be that they are now at ease and hear all these things without much disturbance and are now flattering themselves that they are not the persons, promising themselves that they, are, uh, that they shall escape. If we knew that there was one person and but one in the whole congregation that was to be the subject of this misery, what an awful thing it would be to think of. If we knew who it was, what an awful sight would it be to see such a person? How might all the rest of the congregation lift up a lamentable and bitter, bitter cry over him? But alas, instead of one, how many is it likely will remember this discourse in hell? And it would be a wonder if some that are now present, he's talking about you, well, he could be talking about me too, but how, uh, let's see, but alas, instead of one, how many likely will remember this discourse? It would, it would be a wonder if some that are now present should not be in hell in a very short time before this year is out. And it would be no wonder if some persons that now sit here in some seats of this meeting house in health and quiet and secure should be there before tomorrow morning. That's what Reuben wanted me to preach. <laughs> the, ironically, that is by far the most well-known sermon of Jonathan Edwards. He preached hundreds, however, and the vast majority of them are sermons that are positive and pastoral. But that is the one that he's remembered for. And because that is the sermon that he is most well known for, he is, Jonathan Edwards, is a prime example of one of the main reasons why I don't preach hell, fire, and damnation. Because fear done well inflicts long-lasting memories, long-lasting even visceral trauma that is powerful and even overwhelming, overwhelming of all the other messages we hear about God. And though I will admit that there are numerous scriptures that are translated into English uh, along the lines of things like fear the Lord or fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I believe the idea behind those scriptures is far closer to reverence than terror. And nowhere in all of our holy scriptures do we ever hear the de declaration, God is fear. But we do hear the declaration, God is love. In our scripture this morning from John, John makes this declaration for the second time in this one letter of his. God is love. And this time, he even specifically addresses how this truth about God relates to God and fear. 
For John, since the essence of God is love, if we are afraid, it's not God. If it's God, we will experience love. John begins the text by reminding us that it is God's love that forms the foundation of our relationship. Again, verse 16, uh, and so we know and rely on this love that God has for us. John then proclaims that foundational truth about God. God is love. For John, this isn't some some abstract concept, some theological concept. This is our existential reality. He writes, whoever lives in love lives, lives in God and God in them. In the Greek, it is literally the one abiding in love in God abides. That's how closely they are related. Robert Candlish reiterates the importance of God's love being something that we not only read about, hear about, but a reality that we experience. He writes, God's love to us has become his love in us. It is his love to us transferred, as it were, or transplanted from the gospel, where it is a matter of revelation from without, to our own hearts, where it becomes a moving principle and power from within. There in the gospel, it is God's love manifested to us, revealed to us. Here in our hearts, it is God's love actually existing in us. So far, it wants us to experience love precisely so that we are not afraid. Beginning of 17, in this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. The day of judgment, that we would be not afraid of that. In verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect, not made complete in love. For John, as he writes, Fear, fear is closely related to punishment, connected to punishment. Literally, the Greek translates, fear is not in love because fear has punishment. In different, scholar, or different commentators look at this differently. Some think that the idea is that even the thought of fear brings, I mean, excuse me, even the thought of punishment brings on fear. That's how they're related. Or fear itself is a form of punishment. John Stott puts it this way. That is to say, fear introduces the category of punishment. Or the phrase may signify rather that the fear includes, brings with it the very punishment it fears. In other words, fear has in itself something of the nature of punishment. To fear is to begin to suffer punishment already. Either way, 
John proclaims that the more we experience the true God, the more we experience not fear, but love. Again, we know and rely on this love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And this love casts out fear. As one commentator put it, love and fear are as compatible as oil and water. For John, God is love. And therefore, as followers of Christ, that should be, not only should that, uh, not only is that not, how do I do that? That should be not only experience of God through us. That love should be what people experience from God's people. In verse 19, John writes, we love because God first loved loved us. John Stott um, notes that there's no object that goes with we love in that sentence. It's not we love God because God first loved us. It's not we love other people because God first loved us. It's just simply we love because God first loved us. But we love is is a description of who God's people are to be. Stott puts it this way. John makes a general affirmation about God's people. Our greatest characteristic, he says, is not that we fear, but that we love. Our love expresses itself not only in a confident attitude towards God, devoid of fear, but in a loving concern for our brothers and sisters. The perfect love that drives out fear drives out hatred also. John is following in the footsteps of both Jesus himself and Yahweh, the God of the the Hebrew First Testament. In our gospel passage, we heard Jesus proclaiming that the whole sum of the prophets and the law can be summed up in love God and love others. The whole of, of law and prophet is summed up in in loving God and other people. And we heard in the prophecy through Jeremiah that God would, would create a new covenant with God's people and that God would put their spirit in our hearts even. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And for... I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. It's not about punishment. It's about receiving love from God that changes our life. The essence of God is love. So when we are afraid, it is not God. When it is God, we experience love. And that's why I don't preach in order to incite fear. 
In my own experience of God, in Jesus especially, it has never been one of fear. It has always been love. And as I said, I am aware of scriptures that can lead us to think otherwise. I'm also very aware that there are plenty of preachers and teachers, past and present, who think otherwise, who are more than willing to preach fear. But as for me, if I'm going to err and make a mistake on which of the two I go towards, it's going to be on the side of love. In that respect, I was pleased uh, recently to come across a little excerpt about uh, one of my heroes, Brother Lawrence. In a recent sermon, I noted that he is the author of a, a classic in Christian spirituality, Practice the Presence of God. Um, in this little bit, a friend of his, uh, a friend of Brother Lawrence, shares something that he once heard from him, from Brother Lawrence. He writes, Brother Lawrence shared that at one period of his life, his spirit had been very distressed. He thought for certain that he was damned. No one in the world could have convinced him otherwise. Eventually, however, he came to this conclusion. I entered religious life only for the love of God. I've tried to act only for love. Whether damned or saved, I always want to continue to act purely for the love of God. At least I'll have that in my favor. Until I die, I will do what is in me to love God. That's the quote from, from Brother Lawrence, and then uh, his friend goes on. Since then, he thought neither about heaven nor hell. His life was only inner freedom and constant joy. He placed his sins between God and himself as if to remind God that he didn't deserve love's graces, but that didn't stop God from filling him with blessings. He felt by the hand and presented him before the entire celestial court, showing off this distressed, needy soul to whom love happily grants their abundant graces. John assures us in this scripture that God is love. If we are afraid, then it's not God. If it's God, we will experience love. Thanks be to God.